As discussed on previous episodes of this podcast, after years of focusing on growth at any cost, SaaS companies are being forced to balance growth with improving profitability. According to our guest today, this pivot is creating a moment of truth for customer success organizations. I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Today, I would be speaking with Abbas Hitter Ali, who is currently an executive at GitHub, but also serves as an advisor and investor for a multitude of SaaS startups. So let's get the Insight engine humming here. Abbas, welcome to Tectonic. First of all, can you describe your current role at GitHub and also the role you play in advising tech startups? Sure. Uh, so first of all, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, I guess I'll do the uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Do we, uh, do we still <laughs> yeah. say that? Uh, <laughs> yes, we still say that. <laughs> so in terms of my current role, I think about my life in tech is two distinct things, maybe even three. They're sort of operator, investor, and then mentor slash coach. And so in the operating world, I am currently VP of customer success at GitHub, which I think probably bears a little bit of definition, as I'm sure we'll get into what is customer mm-hmm. success is definitely a thing. So at GitHub, that includes a few different parts of the business. That includes our customer outcomes team, which includes folks like CSMs, customer success architects. We have a community team in there, customer experience. That's that organization. Mm-hmm. It also includes our professional services organization. Okay. Uh, so that's all of our paid services, training, certification that fall under that umbrella. We have both a included support and a premium support offering that's part of the support organization. They also handle you know, incident management for various scenarios as well. Um, I also have a partners organization. So that's our ecosystem of channel partners, VARs, regional SIs, global SIs. That's part of that ecosystem as well. And then a less common component so actually, do have an engineering team that's part of customer success as well. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, and we can talk about that as, as our conversation goes on. But sort of secret weapon for lots yeah. of things that you want to do as a customer success leader that has all the, the functions you'd expect with an engineering or product managers, designers, program managers, engineers. Those are part of that as well. And I have a really close operating partner in that covers ops and data analytics. That is also a key partner Sometimes within customer success, sometimes outside GitHub, we centralize it under revenue operations. Okay. But that's within the context of my operator role. So, so what we would call you know, a big C customer success organization. So when you say customer success, it really is all the components required to make the customer successful with the technology, the professional services, the support, that, you know, the CSMs, all that, all that good stuff. Exactly. Okay, got it. And then if I uh, take that half off and put on the... Uh, the investing side of things, you know, for me, I described it as tech is something both that is my work as well as kind of my hobby. Mm-hmm. That's either a good thing or kind of a sad thing, but that is what it is. Um, <laughs> and within there, I would say, you know, I got started in that world really just by helping out my peers. So people I'd worked with before would go to a new company and say, hey, we used to do this thing. Can you come and talk to us and my new company about that? And that's really how it got started in that world. There was no stake in it. I didn't get paid for it. I just did it as a favor to a friend sort of thing. Uh, Eventually, uh, another topic we'll talk about, I was like, maybe I should monetize this. Um, And so along those veins, it turned into some form of compensation, sometimes cash, sometimes equity. And that's how I got started on the one side. And then I was like, maybe I should flip the script here because it actually sounds cooler to be part of the company as an investor than it does to get 
you paid incrementally for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the first times where I was like, well, instead of paying me an equity, I actually would like to be an investor versus mm-hmm. an equity recipient. And so that was sort of a different way of actually putting things in there. And eventually that led to, you know, being uh, working with a number of VC companies who'd bring me into similar conversations and getting to participate in price rounds. Mm-hmm. And eventually I simply couldn't keep pace with the amount of check that I wanted to write. Yeah. So I created a fund with some other go-to-market leaders. That's the go-to-market operators network that's mm-hmm. made up of all LPs who are strong operators in various go-to-market disciplines. And we invest together. Oh, nice. So that basically is how that got started. And it's been super rewarding to you know act as advisor, mentor, coach to great companies and be part of their story as they go off and do amazing things. You know, sometimes it's a nice energetic break from the operator mm-hmm. role to go through and get experience of what's happening elsewhere. And it's just super exciting to work with young companies that are just, in some cases, very naively going out there to completely transform the world. Yeah, yeah. But it's very energizing to be part of the story. Do you have a sweet spot in terms of companies that, I mean, you're really trying to catch them in the very, very early days that you like to to work with them? I mean, just when they're forming their ideas, what's your ideal sort of maturity of the company when you get involved? Yeah, about three quarters of the investments that we've made to date have actually been at Series B+, where the company is already into growth mode. And we're coming in along with another lead, much larger venture investor we're writing a smaller check, but we're coming in as providing strategic guidance. Yeah. Now, as the venture climate has changed over the course of the last year, sure that market has gotten relatively quiet. So we have been doing more work investing at earlier stages at you know seed, even pre-seed in some cases. And there, of course, you know, we can participate more heavily and more directly because we're not part of a larger price round. And all of those stages have been interesting. So we have companies that are you know, pre-seed all the way to companies that have now raised, you know, hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars of capital and are, uh, you know, well on their way to becoming decacorns, if not already there. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing how much capital is sitting on the sidelines though right now. I mean, it's just crazy how that market froze up. And if you have an AI story, I think you have investment. If you don't have an AI story, you're sort of just a traditional SaaS enterprise story. That market just seems to be dry as a bone for investment. What's your experience there? I would say it's starting to loosen up already. So in the world of making predictions, I'd say I'm going to take the weather forecaster approach, (laughs) which is I'm allowed to be very, very wrong (laughs) and not get in trouble. right? Uh, But I think like as we get to the latter part of the year, I think we'll return to sort of a new normal. It won't be exuberantly normal, but I do think it will be like there is capital available, but we are going to see a thinning of companies. That's just natural, right? There's companies that have been built on the assumption that money would be free forever, right? 0% interest rates, plenty of capital going around because it's a self-feeding engine. And I just don't think that's going to be the case anymore. So there will be more flight to quality. But I do think for the companies that are in the business of being businesses, that they will have the opportunity to have access to capital, you know, without a ton of... Yeah, I mean, I'm doing these executive sessions, as you know, and, you know, I'm probably through about 35 of these. And it's interesting to the companies I talk to that are still private, this story of it's got to be a story of growth and profit, growth and profit. And if you have that story, I think those companies are pretty confident to what you're saying, right? They feel like, hey, we're going to be okay. We'll be able to get more investment if we need it, et cetera. For those that are super far away from being profitable, 
there's a lot more angst there for sure. I mean, you know, it used to be growth at all costs, yeah. no concern for profitability. You could say like, ah, oh, we'll be profitable someday. Yeah. Now I think that there has to be a reasonable Time path frame. to profitability yeah, yeah. is how I describe it. Yeah. You know, at the earlier stage, it's even like series B, series C, honestly, profitability is so far away. Like it's not even necessarily true, but the economics have to start to make sense. Like the unit economics, the margins, like those are conversations people start to have much more seriously yes. versus just being like a metric on a slide you kind of like gloss over. Yeah, yeah. People ask questions. I think as investors, people probe at that to say, how real is that, right? What's the sustainability of it? What are you doing that's actually going to improve that? And vague answers on those things just don't cut it. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of leaders at private companies are still getting used to that conversation yep. track. So there's a lot of demand for advice and guidance on when someone asks me this question, even if the answer is there, what is the right way to say it that is in the language of business in normal sense, right. not just I can just kind of make up a thing and move on? Yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. I'm seeing this even for the public companies, and you look at their, you know, they're doing their quarterly briefing with their analysts on the results. And a lot of the legacy tech companies who have been building ARR, right? They go and they tell this ARR story. Hey, look, our ARR is growing. It's fantastic. Now these analysts are really drilling into that. And they're saying, well, well, well like what's making up that ARR? You know, how much is of it's coming from yeah. maintenance versus your new stuff? How much of it is from your install base versus, you know, net new? I mean, they're really drilling in. And to your point, you just can't gloss over it and have sort of the jazz hands, right? Where you just go, hey, yeah. ARR. It's like, no, 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 no. I really want to understand that. So, so the bar has gotten higher for everybody in terms of how they talk about their business for sure. And I think the other thing that we're going to start to see more of is right now, we have a lot of energy around investing in AI-related sure, stuff. Yeah. The wave that will follow as we stay in this mode of being disciplined investors and disciplined operators, people will start to ask questions about the sustainability of that from a cost perspective, right? There is so many constraints in the AI marketplace. Like yeah. whether you're looking to build a model or you're looking to run inferences, yeah. It is very expensive to do so. The margins on that are kind of terrible. Yeah. And there are huge advantages to the hyperscalers to be able to really dominate those marketplaces by locking up like core access to resources. Yeah. And the loosening of that is years away. Yeah. Right? So I think there's going to become real questions around how do you actually build and articulate a sustainable business model when you have these sort of pressures that we've never seen before, yep. right? Like we've never seen the type of constraints we're talking about now, which is like the data centers don't exist mm -hmm. with the cooling and power density to support this stuff. We don't have enough chips being produced. The prices and like all of these things, the whole supply chain for AI is Constrained. extremely tight yeah. and extremely blocked up. So, you know, you may have a fantastic idea, but there may be a real business challenge you have to face, which is, where are you going to get the compute? Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. that's a very real constraint. Yes. And how expensive is that compute? Because right now it is definitely a seller's market if you offer AI compute. Yeah. Um, it's not an accident that NVIDIA's stock is up, you know, like 4X, 5X yeah. year to date. Like that's not an accident. And it's not an accident that it started with the chat GPT announcements. They got crushed like everyone else during the initial downwave. But it's not an accident that they're sort of yeah. going in the direction they are. And I think the macroeconomic perspective of how you lock these things up all the way from fabrication all the way through, there's going to be a lot of energy that goes there. And 
I think it's also going to be a great opportunity for companies to make their mark there as being incredibly strong operators. Yeah, it, it is super interesting times. I do feel like this is a generational shift in terms of how we're we're operating. And, and obviously, you bring a really a broad perspective to the conversation. I'm so excited that you're here. And I really do want to click into your operational role in customer success. I'll put that hat back yeah, on. Put that hat back <laughs> on. And a while back, we dropped an episode with Nick Meta and Kelly Capote from Gainsight. And in that episode, we reviewed three tactics that CS organizations should be pursuing so that they can scale and get funding in a tougher environment, right? So you got to scale with digital capabilities. You need to own commercials and you need to monetize CS activities where it makes sense. And Nick in that episode was signaling that, hey, things have absolutely changed, right? CS organizations really do need to lean into new tactics to justify their existence. And you and I have talked previously, I think you refer to this pivot as going from a times of plenty to a times of constraint. So how would you describe the current environment right now for the customer success function? Well, look, I can't go back on my own tagline, right? <laughs> Definitely time of constraint is, is, <laughs> is, the, way, is the way we're in. Um, and in terms of levers that Nick talks about, look, I totally agree with those things. I think that if you're not thinking about scaling, however you want to scale, but of course, the most efficient way to scale is going to be digital, mm-hmm. you have to think about scale. Like, how do you do it with scale? You have to think about efficiency. And part of efficiency is what can you monetize, mm-hmm. right? So you have to take the perspective of where can you actually generate and contribute margin dollars, yeah back into the business. I think that's really important for success leaders broadly. I think owning commercials is becoming increasingly important and more accepted in sort of the CS world. The how that happens, there are several flavors of that. You know, whether it's the CSMs doing it, whether you have a separate renewals team, there is like pros and cons, all those things. But at some level, I think having a very tight coupling between commercials and in general building efficiency in the commercial process is definitely a thing across all of our revenue team. So those levers are are spot on. Yeah. And you, you and I were talking, and you were telling me that you actually see four different flavors of CS organizations. So can you describe the four that you see? Yeah. So this, I will preface the fact, this is a very strongly opinionated view of what the world of CS <laughs> okay. looks like. Right? Um, so, and, and it stems from both my operating experience, but I also have probably talk to two brand new success organizations every single week Mm -hmm. at varying stages. Mm -hmm. Like that's been true for a long time. And the first question I ask them is like, tell me about what your customer success team, so this is specifically CSMs, what do they actually do? Mm -hmm. And it is so inconsistent. And it's almost like the teams form to fill in the gaps that other teams leave behind. And so the shape that they take on I try to put them into one of four buckets. And because I have the conversation so many, this framing is super helpful for me, is I try to understand, like, what does a flavor of CS look like? And I'm going to use that as analogous to teams that they sit adjacent to. So some CSM organizations that feel like they're kind of a services org. And you can tell when you ask them about things like the work that they do, it sounds like they're filling a project management role, or they're sort of helping teams out delivering short, not touch points as CSMs, but actual like short-term engagements. They're doing like bursts of a week like professional services. deep dive technical engagement. Exactly. So it feels services-like. And basically, when you see those teams, I'm like, that is a failure mode because in a time of constraint, you should monetize mm-hmm. them. Right? Yeah. So if you do that, your CSMs no longer exist and they become services. Yeah. And so like that's sort of a conversation to have you know, with teams that are in that yeah. mode. That's one flavor. I put it in the bucket of like, that's not an actual effective CSM motion that you're running. Okay. The second one 
feels kind of like support. And these are teams that they describe their role as when customers are having issues or experiencing challenges, they provide the customer-specific context. Mm -hmm. So they provide bridge across multiple tickets. They'll provide the incident management, the escalation when things are going wrong. Lots of multiple things are going on in there. Those teams effectively are acting as a context-specific support organization. And that, to me, also is a failure mode. Mm -hmm. Because you know what that should be? A premium support offering, right? right. Um, And you would monetize that team, and effectively, your CSMs would go away. So you no longer have a CSM organization if that's what that team does. Um, The other one are teams that feel very much like AEs. So those teams are really deep into paper process. They not only handle expansion, like light expansions and renewals, but they'll go really deep into new contract negotiation. Mm -hmm. They'll go into like right-sizing organizations. They tend not to be particularly technical. They're very commercially oriented. And they're more like farmer AEs than they are really CSMs. Mm -hmm. And that also is a failure mode. It doesn't mean you don't need a a farming AE role, maybe that actually makes sense in your business, but you don't actually have a CSM function. So that's a third flavor, right? So services like, uh, support like, and AE like. And the fourth one is the one that actually I like, that I believe is not a failure mode and is the one that teams should aim towards. And that one feels more like an SE role. So you bridge the commercial elements of an AE and be technical enough to be able to have deep technical conversations, at least from a discovery lens. And when you think about the underlying uh, you know, competencies that those teams depl- display, they're really good at understanding a customer's business. Mm-hmm. They have like, strong business acumen. They're also really good at knowing the product and knowing the ecosystem that sits around your product. In enough detail, not enough to implement a product, but to provide architectural guidance when needed to provide that structure. So that's another core competency. They're also really strong at value management. So they can take a value hypothesis, convert it to value realization, They can do discovery of use cases and provide directional context, if not full quantitative view, the value that using a product in a use case will unlock. They're also great collaborators with the rest of the account team, AEs, SEs. That's another core competency within there. But they're also really good at managing portfolios. Some of those other functions, not great at managing portfolios over the long term. So portfolio management is also a key competency within there. And then, you know, really strong on relationship maintenance. They're not going to be great you know, find me a new economic buyer, but you give them a good economic buyer and a good champion and they can maintain and nurture the relationships over time. And all that coming together with like strong cross-functional skills, that matrix of things ultimately makes for a good CSM profile as a person. And ultimately that is the, the, in my view, the successful model of a CSM team. And part of this, you know, existential risk for CSM teams is when they don't fall, in my opinion, into that bucket. Mm -hmm or into one of the other threes or some vague combination where depending on the CSM you talk to on the team, they're like multi-skilled. They're not actually focused. They do, depending on the person you talk to, they spike up in any one of those mm-hmm. four modes. And that is the highest risk mode that, that I believe is when you're not even any one of those, you're trying to be all four at the same time. That team is pretty much good. Interesting. So let me play play back as I listen to you because here's what I would assert. The first three versions you described are actually not customer success organizations. <laughs> they are professional service or support or really renewal people or, or, or salespeople. It's only the third one that really fills that gap. And if you look at the customer success function, if you go back you know, 10 years ago and you looked at all of tech, not just SaaS companies, it was not an overly common function, especially in the traditional tech companies. 
But yeah. now, I mean, we benchmark this every year. 82% of tech companies we benchmark have a distinct customer success organization in play. And I would submit the reason you have this new piece on the chessboard is to do what you described in that fourth version. That was the gap, okay. right? This ongoing value realization, connecting the dots for the customer and ongoing. That's the incremental value add of a customer success organization. And I totally agree with you. If you're not on that square, A, you're not really customer success. And it's kind of confusing, right? Why aren't you charging for the PS or the premium support or you know, you're really part of that, you know, it's a commercial motion, but still you have a gap. You don't have that fourth square covered there. You're not, you don't really have a, you know, a full fledged customer success capability. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and in fact, you would think this wouldn't be a problem. Anymore, yeah. But every you single week <laughs> I have a customer, a conversation with someone where someone is one of those failure modes. Yeah, and even at large scales, we're talking companies that are in the, you know, hundred million, 200 million plus revenue range. And they have all four of those, or they have an undefined thing. And what happens when you're missing that square, right? Everyone else fills in the gap. You're like, well, you know, our support teams go above and beyond. Like, that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Like, it sounds like a nice thing, but it's not actually like building a sustainable business. Our AEC involved, like, handhold our customers the whole time. Like, shouldn't you be out there selling, like, net new ARR? Like, isn't that your thing? And SEs are like, I stay with my customers forever. Like, well, that's not really your kind of role, right? <laughs> it maybe makes sense for like the top yeah. 10 percentile of your revenue, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't make sense for 90%. Yeah. So you have teams that are doing heroics or stretching themselves thin or feel like you know they're not really able to deliver the ultimate outcomes of their business. And that lack of existence of a clear CSM function that does exactly those things yeah. means that every other part of the business is weirdly stretched as yeah. well. And you can sense it. Yep. If you go in and you talk at the CEO level, at the CRO level, you'll notice these weird tensions. You know, like, why are you guys like not able to execute in this particular direction? Mm-hmm. And it's because everyone is filling in for another part of the problem. Yeah. And the lines aren't clear. The incentives aren't clear. The direction isn't clear. And you feel it internally. And in like typical Conway's law style, your customers feel yeah. it. They're like, something is missing in the picture here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in this current environment of constraint, and let's assume that the company does have the right flavor, this fourth model charter for their CS organization. So they you know, got that right. What are the, the key levers you think CS organizations need to be pulling to be successful right now? So I would say if you want to be a successful CS organization right now, you have to be thinking about efficiency mm-hmm. and scaling, right? So there is so much energy that we have put into building CS organizations that actually can't articulate what they do and why they do it. Like, why is your CSM ratio one CSM to five accounts? Why not 10? Why not 20? Why is your maximum coverage at 30? Why do you stop supporting customers at you know $500,000 a year spent? Whatever the number is. A lot of those things are just, well, that's kind of what we did. Right. And I think like one of the most important things that teams should be using to be successful right now is they have to be thinking about, are we covering enough of the business for what we spend on the function? So it's a pure ROI question, right? I spend X percentage and different levels of how you think about the investment levels look like. I tend to use percentage of ARR as a measure for CSM organizations because the business is momentum oriented through CSM versus looking purely at gap revenue, which gives you more of an expense ratio, the point in time versus momentum. And you do care about momentum. So for the investment you make, are you getting the return that you want? And how do you get a stronger return? And the only way to do that is think about scale, think about digital. That's a really important thing to do. The second is 
have to be thinking about where you prioritize the energy for where it makes impact. And not like as a general thing, we spend time with our customers, but be very pointed. What are the specific engagements and, and campaigns that your CSMs run with your customers? And how do each one of them perform? And you have to be ruthless about it. You're like, which one actually works? Or which revenue band and spend level of our customers? Which market segment? Which geo? And like that level of detail analysis is critical for what teams should need to be looking at. And the third is monetization and ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You have to be thinking about like, what are the things that are so high value that customers should be paying for them? That I can then you know monetize directly customers that they're in for it, they're buying into their own success. And then the ecosystem. If you're doing the same thing over and over again, and there's another party at the customer's table who's there the whole time, maybe this should actually scale through them. So I would say monetization first wave and then monetization through ecosystem. That is that is definitely like an important thing that should be part of the levers you're looking for. Well, you know, you opened up there with a lot of what I'd call sort of the financial maturity and discipline, really understanding, right, the, the performance metrics of your business. And I think a lot of CS organizations are so mature there. And the overall company is mature there. We have a survey in play right now where we're asking companies, do you track the amount of money you spend on non-billable CS services? Do you have your arms around that? There's only 32% of the companies understand what that number is, right? That's like, a, to me, foundational, right? How big, how yeah. much are we spending on free services, right? Like we don't even know. So I think that there is this maturity that has to happen with these CS organizations on performance metrics, the financial metrics. And again, the bar has gotten higher here and it's new muscles that a, a lot of the CS leaders have to build, the operational teams have to build, and even the CFOs have to build because they haven't been asking these more detailed questions around the financial model of CS. And so I think there's learnings going on all over the place. And you were telling me that executives are asking a very simple question these days. What do your CSMs do? <laughs> right? So that's the foundational question. Yeah. So ideally, if you were a CS executive and your, your CFO or CEO comes and asks that question, how do you answer it? Yeah. I mean, I'd say like the first thing is that fuzzy answer, we're responsible for customer success and driving adoption. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that answer is kind of terrible right now, right? Because if you think about like other functions, imagine if you talk to BDRs or AEs and they gave you that vague answer without the ability to report it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You'd be like, that's unacceptable. Like you have a specific thing. You're responsible for lead generation that converts at this rate, that drives us revenue. You have all the business numbers. You've got like leading indicators, you've got lagging, you've got conversion, yeah. you've got clear numbers, you're assigned a thing. Yep. Try having that conversation with most customer success organizations. That veneer is paper thin yes. around yeah. a lot of our customer success functions. You poke at it and it's like, oh, like we don't even know how we should be measuring this thing. Mm -hmm. Should we be measuring as a percentage of ARR? Should we measure some part of gross margin? I'm like, yeah, like there's reasons why you measure different business in all of these ways, but it is new. Very, very few organizations in customer success, and this is customer success writ large, yeah. right? So covering all the parts of post sales, yeah. they are run not in this way. And it's because it's never been a need. We've never had to do it. So it is new muscle being built, as you said, by the leaders, but also by the CFOs who are like, I don't know how to calibrate That's this right. thing, right? I could say we should spend 15% of our ARR on customer success. Is that too much or too little? Like right. the data doesn't exist to actually back it up. Yep. You have to really go out and have the conversations with your peers to collect it, 
at the CFO and at the CCO level to really figure out what those pieces look like. But going back to your question, I'm like, okay, how do you sort of answer this question? The fuzziness definitely doesn't really work. We talked about the four models before that I've seen. Three of those just go away. And you're like, actually, we don't need to do this at all because uh, we're surviving with these other functions. We should monetize and just move on. And you have actually seen a wave of entire customer success organizations disappear yes. because they can't actually articulate what they do. They're in one of the failure modes mm-hmm. or so light in the fourth that actually the business won't notice them being gone. And I think that is the right thing to happen mm-hmm. for those organizations because they're not contributing enough in a constrained environment to actually make that happen. And the teams have to be almost rebuilt or redefined. So for me, when someone says, what is the point of a customer success organization? I think about it as answering a few different questions. What is the ultimate deliverable of customer success to the company? Who consumes those things? And what decisions or outcomes does it drive? But like, that's the ultimate question you have to answer. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the number one thing that a customer success management, so CSM organization specifically, ships is customer health. Mm-hmm. The, the ultimate reviewers of, arbiters of, and builders of what is happening in customer health. And customer health, not in the fuzzy sense of, our customers are okay, right? right? right. Like, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a very structured approach that has a layered view of the customers, what they need, their health model, and a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I shared with you a little while ago the work that I'd done with Andreessen Horowitz in terms of writing down mm-hmm. what some of these models look like in a hierarchy of needs. So, you know, if we think about the individual components, it's everything from starting at the bottom. Does your product actually work, right? The pure technical health. Going up from there, do you have the right features? Are you missing gaps in your product? So, sort of product completeness. The health of your relationships with key stakeholders, champions, economic buyers. What is the sentiment of your customer towards the problem set that you're solving? And then sort of next level above that is the outcomes. Are you delivering the ultimate business value that you need to for your customer in order for them to stay and grow with you? At the very top, a very strong perspective that says, is this account okay commercially? Mm-hmm. What is the contraction, the current state and forecast, right? So churn, contraction, expansion, cross-sell, all those things are in there. That is the ultimate thing that the CS organization ships, which is why that skills view and competencies we talked about earlier are really important to do that. And that's what we drive. And of course, a CFO should say, okay, but so what? What am I going to do with that information? Mm -hmm. I think the really important thing the teams have to articulate is what does that actually drive for the business? So it's forecastability in terms of the existing business. It's customer success qualified leads for where growth lives. That's where the discovery skills come into play. It's product guidance. It's knowing that our product works. Are we going to deliver the ultimate outcomes? And that is the ultimate thing that you ship. And it requires pulling together lots of parts of the org to make that happen. But if your customer success management team cannot deliver an ironclad qualitative and quantitative perspective on the health of your customers individually and in aggregate, then those teams are not doing their job. Yeah, absolutely. And clicking in to customer health, Customer health should be a very data-driven score, right? I mean, it's not just, hey, we have a customer SAT survey, we have an NPS score, and like you said, thumbs up. I mean, it has to be very data-driven. There's multiple data points that are informing the customer health, number one. And then the second thing you put on the table is you should be connecting the dots. There should be correlation between higher customer health scores and better things like a renewal rate and expansion rate. You know, if you can't 
tell that complete story, then you go back to, uh, again, why are we funding you? What's going on here, right? So I think you are spot on yeah. in, and in terms of being able to really quantify the value that you are delivering to the company. And if you can't quantify it, you are going to be under immense pressure to simply take out costs. Because the CFO's like, I'm not sure, you know, and, and maybe I have some yeah. risk here by you know reducing the number of CSMs or whatever, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, you're not really helping me. I don't know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I can take that and put that into a team that is operating that way. I'll hire, you know, some more sales folks, give them a quota. Exactly. I'll hire some BDRs and give them to a right. pipeline because I get that quantitative structure right. there, right? And I actually think an important point I actually want to, I want to go back to is like this, the relationship between a quantitative health model and other approaches, mm-hmm. right? So when you're getting started, you may have no idea what the quantitative measure of each of those layers of customer health looks mm-hmm. like. So you have to go qualitative, yeah. but you can't stop there. Because right. a lot of organizations say we have some flavor of this, maybe not in exactly that structure, but they have some flavor of qualitative people. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, have you tested that? Have you back tested that against your leading indicators for what actually an outcome for a customer is going to be as well as the underlying commercial outcomes? Mm-hmm. Did it pass? If it passed, then you should ask the question that says, cool, now that I can qualitative do this, what are the signals like quantitatively? If I just take a step back and take like an observer view, right? What data can I get? We'll have a separate conversation around data here, right? Mm-hmm. But like what data can I look at that helps me actually get the same answer as my qualitative perspective? Can I back test that? If that works, I then feed that into my systems yep. to cover all the places digitally where I can't get today. Yeah. And so you have the qualitative validating against the business outcomes, the quantitative validating against the qualitative, but it's a constantly evolving loop. You're always testing against each other. And that, again, is a discipline that doesn't exist very commonly in customer success organizations is being data driven to operate in that mode where you're constantly testing the assumptions because that's how you know that things are actually working. You can go back and say, I have the data to say, this is the impact my team is having. And here is the attribution to our business and customer outcomes the team is delivering. That's how you actually justify the existence of a team. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And so let's segue into this data conversation, right? Because CS should be an incredibly data-driven organization. And so with that reality, what telemetry do you think is vital for customer success? So I'm going to start by calling out my own bias here, mm-hmm. right? So prior to joining GitHub, you know, I was at Twilio and I came into Twilio through the segment acquisition, and that is a customer data platform. Mm-hmm. So as you might imagine, I have very strong, like leaning towards having like a strong, a strong view on what customer data looks mm-hmm. like. But if you think about the layers of data, I go back to sort of the hierarchy of needs and think about what data does it take to operate each layer, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a few different layers that are absolutely essential. If you don't have access to reliable product telemetry, you're, you're doing in trouble, trouble right? Yeah. You got to have product telemetry. Um, you also need to have a really good structure for how you actually capture the needs of customers. Think about like the capability gaps, the feature asks, mm-hmm. right? Things that are sort of in the way of a customer adopt, blockers to customer adopting or growth. You need a way to actually track that. And that's shared data, obviously, between product and go to market broadly. Mm-hmm. But CSMs are a key consumer and contributors to that data set. You also need act- information about activity, so relationship activity. Who's top class to our economic buyer, whether it's in sales, SE, someone in finance, all that has to be available. You need a lot of relationship activity data as well. And more broadly, you need to know all the customer touch points. So a full, true 360-degree view across the full surface area of customer touch points, digital or in real life. So we're talking webinars. I read some documents. 
uh, you know, I put in a support ticket. When was the last conversation with sales? What if, you know, attended a product roundtable or bet at a conference? Um, you know, I did a QBR with a CSM. I wrapped up a, uh, an engagement with services. Um, you know, attended training, went to third party certification. Really the full view corpus of data that tells you all the things your customer is doing with you. You kind of need to have that in order to run the rich data science. You're going to need to extract the health scores and engagement and warning signals you want to have to run the business. And we already talked about how that combines both a qualitative and quantitative view to build you that health perspective. And then you need a data platform that allows for ease of integration, the movement of data in and out. You can't build a selfish data repository. These things have to work in tandem with other bodies of data. So that's sort of really, really important. And going down that list, you will find many, many gaps. You know, they're true everywhere. No one has a perfect system by any means. Even at Segment where we had, that was literally our business. It was never fully perfect exactly, even what we want, right? But it should be a very strong aspiration and a top priority. So I want to click into two things that you covered there. So one, you know, you, you said a very important thing is you can't build a selfish data repository. And one of the things that we're going to be chipping on in Vegas in the fall here is breaking down these silos because what we see pretty consistently is the data is very siloed in tech companies, right? Sales has their CRM data. Now CS has their customer success platform data. You might have finance as other data and marketing has their data. And then when you're trying to get this holistic view of customer health and experience, it's hard, right? And so really centralizing that, making sure that everybody has a, a complete view is more important than ever, right? To drive these customer health scores. So I think we do have to break these silos down and have that mentality. The second thing I'm going to click into though, you opened up with how important it is to have the product telemetry. And I'm very curious, this is something we've been studying for years in terms of what do tech companies look at, you know, in terms of what's coming out of the product? And there's always basic information like, okay, who's logging in? And then, okay, maybe what features they're using. But when you climb up that value and you say, okay, do we have any sense of what I'll I'll call it efficiency? Is the customer efficiently using our technology, right? Are they really using the high value features, et cetera? Just tell me a little bit about some of the most compelling product telemetry that you have seen that really does help understand customer health. So like in my time at Segment, I got to see both good implementations of customer data collection okay. and bad implementations <laughs> okay, of customer, okay. customer yeah. use, yeah. right? So the good models were generally led by a couple of key strong ingredients. One, there was a person who actually thought about data all the way yeah. through. So someone was like a data spiritual leader yeah. who cared about data for the sake of serving multiple purposes. I'll walk through a couple of examples of that. But to answer your question of like what good product telemetry looks like. You can get very limited data around someone logged in. When was the last time they logged in, right? Have they logged into this feature? What you're getting is like a little bit of a perspective of like, there's a blip of light that's kind of like flashing all over the place. And what you really need is like a searchlight. That's how like lights up a whole region. Mm -hmm. And so teams that do this well, think about not only the fact that someone has done a thing in the product, but ultimately, what are all the things that need to happen to get them to the Mm -hmm. outcome? Right. right. So if you say the ultimate solve for a product is we deliver a use case, I'm going to make up a use case here, right? The use case is to go through and purchase something on our website. What are all the things that it involves to make that happen? You need to know, are did they come to our website? Where did they come from? Right. When they actually got there, how long did they spend in doing a thing? What pathways did right. they explore? How long did it take to convert like the next yeah. stage? Did they go like 
you know, research our thing on a comparison website, that they put that all together, that they add the cart, that they go look for a coupon, right? Like, sort of like a very simplistic e-commerce example. Yeah. So that's like very broadly applicable. You have to think about the whole thing and say, can you actually shine a light on all of that and put it together? Not enough to look at it as like distinct lights, yeah. but actually look at it as a whole. And if you cannot do that, your product telemetry strategy is automatically flawed. And it can't just be also in the product, right? Which is why I talked about that full 360 view. So much happened before that person was ever in your product. Mm -hmm. They were in your docs. They were in your training. They were attending an event. The pathway that got them there and the things that they did outside of your product. Say like, hey, they were advocates for us at this event or they showed up at these pieces. You need to expand the horizons a little bit to cover more of that data and look at the whole thing because that's what you're looking for. That's what tells you that there are things that are happening outside of the product that actually drive the most successful path through the product, right? Like maybe the secret for someone to actually make their way all the way successfully through the product is not actually the things you're doing in the product, but the fact that they attended a training class Mm -hmm. a week before they actually logged into the product at the same time. You are completely blind to that unless you have that perspective. So as I listen to you there, I mean, you put this really important thought on the table about the best implementations you see is when somebody is a product is being created or telemetry is being created for the product. That's all they think about is what is the data structure? What are we going to learn? How do we, you know, do we have a holistic view here? And I'm curious, your just opinion, if you think about, you know, all the product implementations you've seen in the telemetry that comes out, what percentage of those really do have a solid telemetry strategy, the one that you just articulated, as opposed to it's flawed, it's not the complete thought. I mean, what percentage do you think B2B you know, software is really there? I would say it's probably half. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's, right. I think, that, I think, I think you're being really kind. That's just generous. <laughs> yeah. And, and because like you may have like silos of it that are good, yeah. right? Like you may have like good product telemetry, they have good marketing telemetry. But ultimately, when we think about like, why does this even matter, right? Like, what are people going to do with this data? Why do you need like, as I described this, why do you need a spiritual leader mm-hmm. for data across your organization? I mean, it's, it's, you have to think about the same thing that we talked about with product selling as well is you can't be focused on data for data's yeah. sake. Yeah. You have to have a reason. So when I think about the stakeholders for good data, Certainly one of them is customer success to build the digital experience to deliver the right content, the right time in app or email, Mm. but it feeds the needs for so much more. In the current world, if you want to build, I'll borrow language here from GitHub and Microsoft, if you want to build a Mm co-pilot for different parts of your team, you want to build a seller co-pilot or an SE co-pilot or a CSM co-pilot or a support co-pilot or a trainer co-pilot, what are you going to need? You're going to need a training data set that tells you the patterns and tells you about all the interaction points that tell you these are the good outcomes to get to. So you need the data to drive all of those things. You need it to support investment models. You need to support uh, you know, the customer journey. You need to support the impact analysis and attribution. It is such an important piece of data to understand what your customers do with you because you're not going to be able to observe it all by hand, much less stitch it together. So it is absolutely critical. And if you want to succeed in the current world of being able to grow, grow efficiently. This is outside of customer success. You have to have a robust strategy for customer data. If you don't, yeah. you're Well, so you mentioned Copilot. And so that's a good segue into this topic of AI. So that, that's a great example of how people are leveraging new AI tools, right, to create these Copilots. What do you think are some of the exciting possibilities of AI as it relates to customer success? 
Yeah. So look, I would say we're super early stage here, yeah. right? I mean, if you think about the journey of just applying even data for the AI side for a second, right? When we think about the phases of maturity that existed, mm-hmm. we have like disconnected and generic, you know, messaging to customers between marketing, product, BDR, CLCF, everyone's doing their own thing, completely disconnected and generic, right? Mm-hmm. Then maybe you have a connected journey, but it's still generic content. Right. And then you get to the world of maybe you personalize some of the content, but now it's disconnected again, right? Because yeah. it's personalized by each team's data silo. And then you go to another phase of maturity where you combine all the data t- together and you personalize it. Um, and it's connected outreach. And then you get into a world where it's not only personalized, but interactive. Yeah. Right. And I think that is the leap we're at. But keep in mind, most functions and most communications haven't even gotten through the pre AI phases yet. Right. right? right like right. we're still solving for some of those pieces. And one of the questions I have is, you know, similar to how in a lot of places globally, you skip the wired telecom mm-hmm. uh, you know, experience and went straight to Mabel. Yeah, yeah. Can you skip some of like the connected portions and go straight to AI? Like, can you skip a maturity step? Yeah, right. Yeah. As long as you get your data right, can you jump ahead? Like that's a big question mark, but yeah. one that I'm really excited about because yeah. really the ultimate goal here is all these digital experiences, customer success or otherwise, they drive both scale but they also drive experience and demand. So like your digital experiences can drive much more focused demand for your expensive resources, which is your people, right? You save them for someone who is ready, who actually needs your help, who's sort of pre-vetted, you already kind of a sense of what they need, and you can deliver the same value in less time to the people who really need it. Like that is a huge unlock. Like, is it possible to make that leap? And, you know, in this case, I, uh, you're welcome to edit this out later, but I'll make a plug for a company that I just recently invested in, yeah. a company called Maven, early stage, but they're looking to build a general purpose support copilot for mm-hmm. customers, for companies to go and build that. Because yeah. think about how much time, like how much data exists in that in that view they can respond to, yeah. right? And yeah. I think we're, we're going to approach a world where a lot of companies will try to leapfrog the personalization journey and go straight to, I have really good data. If I get that right, I can jump into a full interactive mode. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good thought. And I do think that this space, you opened up with by saying, hey, it's early days, completely agree there. But I think this space is going to evolve rapidly. I think these tools are going to start to get out there. And like you said, just the company you just mentioned, companies like that are going to get on the board. They're going to start putting some really powerful, compelling tools in front of enterprise companies. And, you know, I, what we're telling, you know, everybody is you, you got to keep your eye on this. You got to really lean into this conversation and understand how it's maturing, understand what the most powerful, impactful use cases are for your environment. Because I think if you don't have a strategy around this, is not just a CS organization, but as a company, more importantly, broadly, you're going to get caught flat-footed here because other companies are going to figure this out. And like you say, they're going to leapfrog, <laughs> you know, in yeah. terms of what they're able to able to do. So I want to be really respectful of your time here. I, one final question for you. Do you have any final words of advice you would give a CS executive out there that is just battling right now to keep budget and headcount? What would you tell them? I'd say, look, the battle is not yours alone, for one. Entire companies are going to go through this thinning, right? We have valuation gaps, we have runway issues. So it's not just a CS thing. Company existence in general is going to be a question for a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. And I think along with that comes every functional team's existential risk, including Mm -hmm. for CS. So I think for the advice I would offer there is don't wait for it to happen, right? Lean in, lean in now. I would say if, if you're a CS leader today and you cannot answer the impact question, the attribution question of the work the teams are doing to business and customer impact, 
then you are already behind, right? So I'd say take that action today, push for accountability, push for operational excellence, you know, question what you do and the very reason for its existence incrementally, piece by piece, until you get the answers you want. Be data-driven, really good at building that narrative, build the reporting, share your leading indicators, your lagging indicators, the impact analysis, right? Do the first two monthly, do the last quarterly, a quarterly update on here is the impact the team that we've had. That should be part of like the normal rhythm of business for a CS leader at this stage. And I would say, don't wait, be bold, lean right into it. That would be my, my advice. Well, that's a great segue into the close here where I always like to end with a, a question of the day. And so thank you so much for your, your time today. And this is a great dialogue. I knew it was going to be uh, really insightful for, for the audience. But if, if you are in a customer success organization, or maybe you even lead a customer success organization, do you have a strategy to face your moment of truth? Cheers. Cheers.